the Leaders Who Learn podcast produced by Claremont Lincoln University with your host, Tony DiGiovanni. As president of Claremont Lincoln University, Tony DiGiovanni will interview presidents and CEOs in business and industry to discuss leadership urgently needed today, the collaboration necessary for leading well, and the ways to tap the leader within each of us. Interviews showcase ethical and humble leaders who listen, learn, and build a legacy of gratitude, service, and transparency in their businesses and communities. Now let's hear from our host, Tony DiGiovanni. Welcome to another episode of Leaders Who Learn, presented by Claremont Lincoln University, the university that delivers socially conscious education to students who are dedicated to making a positive change in their worlds. This is another podcast in our precedent series on ethical leadership. I'm Tony DiGiovanni, president of Claremont Lincoln University, and I'll be hosting today's session. We have a special treat today with this podcast. I have the privilege of interviewing the Reverend Mark Fowler, Chief Executive Officer of the Tannenbaum Center for Interreligious Understanding in New York City. Mark is responsible for program development, product management, design and implementation of all of the Tannenbaum trainings and the expansion of Tannenbaum programs, both nationally and internationally. Mark's been involved in New York City's education community for over 20 years and is a skilled facilitator and trainer who has worked with teachers, counselors, administrators, and students. He is a sought after keynote speaker and facilitator and has addressed organizations globally on issues of equality in race, gender, sexual orientation, and religion. Mark is a Duke University graduate in English and education and an ordained interfaith, interspiritual minister from the One Spirit Interfaith Seminary. Mark, welcome to our podcast. I'm so anxious to have our listeners learn more about the important work you and your team are doing at the Tannenbaum Center. But first of all, how are you and how's that Tannenbaum team doing? We've been some, through some turbulent times thus far in 2020. Well, you know, Tony, thank you so much for the opportunity to, to speak with you. Um, it's a pleasure and a privilege. Um, we are all doing well. Uh, we have been working remotely since uh, late March. And um, at this particular moment, I'm happy to say that uh, we and those we love are all well. So uh, we're, we're in pretty good shape. Mark, the Tannenbaum mission statement is quite noble and quite ambitious. Let me read a little bit from that mission statement. Tannenbaum systematically dismantles religious prejudice, hatred, and violence and simultaneously promotes justice and respect for people of all religious beliefs. Talk to us about how you accomplish the Tannenbaum mission in today's polarized environment. Well, Tony, you know, one of the ways that we try to bring Tannenbaum's mission to light is in the proactive things that people can do in the programmatic areas in which we work. Uh, Tannenbaum is a 28-year-old not-for-profit. We're secular and non-sectarian, so we're not a religious organization, 
but we recognize the power that religion has in people's individual lives and in society. And so when we talk about dismantling religious prejudice and hatred and violence, that often comes through education and that comes through building solutions with the stakeholders that we work with, whether it's in schools or in corporate workplaces or in hospitals and healthcare systems or raising the profile and the visibility of the work of our peacemakers in action. So uh, I would also venture to say that the polarization that we're seeing today is not new. It has been on a continuum. And so Tannenbaum has been doing its work addressing often the ways in which people differ around religious beliefs and practices. That is an amazing uh, mission statement and uh, accomplishment of some very laudable objectives in, in today's world. So I salute you for that. Thank you. The center operates uh, over a wide range of communities. Uh, you do work in the K-12 educational environment, in healthcare, the corporate sector. How do you attempt to serve each of these diverse groups? Well, each of our programs has a, a theory of change. Um, if you will, uh, a mission statement within all of the program areas that feed into and support the overall mission of Tannenbaum. And in each of the areas every year, we plan and strategize about how to move the needle forward to those ultimate realities that we want to see happen in the areas in which we work. So if we're in our education work, for instance, we're very much focused on the behaviors that students engage in around religious differences and other differences. And so our curriculum, our trainings, all provide educators and students with the opportunity to recognize and understand that, that there is religious difference, that there are things that we can learn from one another, and that uh, each of us has a unique role to play. If we're working in the corporate sector, we're generally working more towards the goal of employees walking into their workplace and knowing without a shadow of a doubt that they will be respected whether they are a religious person or not. And that the company's policies and practices and procedures and the way in which they're managed um, by their senior executives all will reflect an awareness of and an appreciation for the religious diversity within the company. Uh, in healthcare, we wanna make sure that patients experience respect in their interaction with medical providers around the decisions that they're making that are based in their religious beliefs and practices. So the trainings and the resources that we provide to both those studying to become doctors and nurses and physicians assistants, et cetera, as well as to those who are currently practicing medicine, that they have the tools to engage with the patient population and to incorporate their religious beliefs into their treatment plan. So I think all of our work, if you will, is directed towards an experience that we want people to have around a respect for religious difference and appreciation for religious difference, as well as a deepening of skill sets 
so that when we're encountering this issue, that we're doing so in a respectful manner. Very, very interesting. And how do you know in each of those communities when your mes message is resonating? Uh, when do you know uh, if you're making a difference? You know, I, I, I think one of the best ways we know that we've made a difference is when we can hear our principles either coming out of the mouths of the people that we've been working with, or even sometime later, hearing about the impact that our work has had on a particular person. I remember several years ago conducting a training for educators. And one of the things that we were talking about was uh, students' ability to listen attentively to one another. And I introduced a, a, a training idea principle that we used. And the teacher then took it to and used it with her students. And she came back a couple of weeks later for the second session and said, I cannot believe that my students are actually listening to one another and respecting the process by which someone gets to speak. So it's usually in that behavior change that we see that we know that we're moving in the right direction and that our message is resonating with other people. That's, that's very interesting. At Claremont Lincoln University, we like to talk about the Claremont core. And the core is really a, a set of four skills that I think very much parallel what you're doing at the Tannenbaum Center. And the first of which is mindfulness. Uh, and from mindfulness and really allowing oneself to be open uh, to hearing the other, uh, that really leads to a more enriched dialogue. And hopefully that dialogue leads to further collaboration and, and ultimately change in the worlds in which we live. And I, listening to you, it sounds like they're very similar precepts uh, that are used at the center. Yeah, no, I would definitely agree. And I, and I would just take it a step further to say that, you know, one of the, I guess, tools that we've shared mostly in our workplace work and in our healthcare work, but is foundational in our education work as well, is the idea of managing people's behavior and not their beliefs. So often people feel, um, restricted in some way, because they may not know the specifics of a tradition that's different from their own. And so they don't engage or don't know how to respectfully engage with someone who is different from them. But in each of the areas in which we work, if you're, man if you're managing the things that people are doing and that they are saying to one another, rather than what they fundamentally believe, we take several steps further toward true mutual respect and understanding. Yes, uh, I very much agree. Uh, it's a great way to look at a report card, if I can say, in some sense, when you see those behavioral changes and you see people acting uh, in the ways uh, where they are more open and they are willing to listen to the other. So I think that's, uh, that's very, very interesting. One of, the, one of the center's most inspiring initiatives uh, is your Peacemaker in Action Network. 
identifying men and women globally, uh, dri driven by their religious beliefs and ready to risk their lives to end death and destruction in their worlds. Can you tell us about this work and how you find and bring together your peacemakers? Absolutely, happy to. Um, the Peacemakers in Action Network uh, really started with the Peacemakers in Action program, which is a little, it's close to like 22 years old now. Our first Peacemakers, I believe, were named in 1998. And we have five criteria that we use to identify Peacemakers in Action, or more broadly, those who are religiously motivated to end violence and work for peace in active conflict zones around the world. Um, we engage in an international nominations and search process um, conducted uh, by sharing information with other NGOs around the world. And we receive submissions of people who are identified as meeting uh, the five criteria. And through that process, we then take all of the nominations, we rank them, we verify all of the information, and we have a program advisory council of conflict resolution practitioners and theologians uh, who actually make the final determination. We generally do this process every two to three years, naming peacemakers for the preceding two years. And we're actually in the midst of a nominations process right now. We've closed nominations. We are vetting and ranking the nominations that we've received. And then our uh, program advisory council will meet this fall to review the nominations and then ultimately name two new peacemakers. And I would also say that um, by direction of our board, um, when we name new peacemakers, one of them must be a woman. Because what we've recognized and what we see in the larger peace building field is that often women are not recognized for the unique contributions they're making to peacemaking and peace building. So one of our peacemakers must be a woman and the other person that receives the award can be a man or a woman. Mark, can you tell me about the, the last winners? Uh, of your Peacemakers in Action Award? Certainly. Uh, so James Atok uh, was given the Peacemaker in Action Award for his work in South Sudan. He is a former lost boy, child soldier, who survived that experience. And rather than take the option to be uh, taken out of South Sudan and relocated uh, to the United States or another part of the world, he stayed because he wanted to provide a way in whatever way he could to um, socialize the other lost boys and child soldiers and now runs an, orphan an orphanage in South Sudan. And the other of our peacemakers is Dr. Sarah Ahmed, uh, who does her work in uh, Iraq. And she has been doing um, interfaith work and community building and relief work uh, for a number of years. And interestingly enough in her history, she started out going to dental school uh, and then decided that she wanted peace building to be her work. Very diverse individuals uh, that you have there. How, how do the peacemakers relate to any of the other work you have going on every day in New York City? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. So we convene our peacemakers um, now about every three years in a working retreat. And the purpose of the working retreat is multifold. Uh, they gather together to do uh, strategy work around what we call interventions, where one or more peacemakers will go to another peacemaker's home country to share their better practices around managing the conflict in that country. Most recently, our peacemaker from Syria in January hosted our peacemaker from Bosnia-Herzegovina, Hind Kabwat and Friar Eva Markovic, respectfully, uh, outside of Syria in Turkey to conduct a training for uh, a group of women in post-conflict resolution um, strategies. So that relates though to our work in New York is that at, our, at the last two working retreats we posted, the peacemakers did speak about wanting to share some of their peace building practices um, more broadly than in the general area of conflict zones and to share some of their peace building techniques with issues like um, gun violence. And so they issued a statement not too long after their last, um, uh, their last working retreat in 2019 on um, the ravages that they've seen from the proliferation of guns in the conflict zones that they work on and implored the United States to take action to reduce gun violence um, here. So very often there is a direct connection and what we're also seeing now given the social unrest around um, equity and racial injustice is the peace building field looking to see what are the lessons learned and better practices from peace building efforts that go on in conflict zones to the circumstances that we find ourselves here with in the United States and in other parts of the world. Yeah, so much of that uh, could be used right here in the US uh, in today's environment. Oh yes. Absolutely. Historically, um, religious tolerance is a, a charged subject. You know, when we think about it, wars have been won and lost over our religious beliefs. Of course, for me, as a white man, raised from birth as a Catholic, I can tell you that my religion is the one certain way to heaven. And I'm not sure about all the rest of you. <laughs> How do you deal with attitudes like that? Well, you know, first is that um, Tannenbaum's work is not generally located in the world of tolerance as much as it's located in the world of respect and developing respect for differences. We see tolerance as a step in the journey towards true respect for one another. Uh, because if you will, at least in the United States context, if you look at the word tolerance or tolerate, then it implies that you really are still harboring uh, ill feelings and beliefs about yes. a person. Yes. And so, you know, we really do locate our work in developing capacities and um, developing even a desire for people to almost hunger for learning about the differences among them. And I, going back to that idea of managing behaviors and not belief, I would say that you are completely free 
to um, believe that your way is the certain way to heaven. And where we would, I think, um, do our work or where we often find our work happening is when your belief actually begins to either impede or restrict the freedom of another person to believe as they will. And I think that's really the, that's really the key. Uh, am I accorded some privilege, you know, as a white Christian, vis-a-vis -vis the other religions uh, of the world? Is there something special that you would say I have versus the rest of the population? Well, yeah, I mean, certainly in, in the United States, you know, there's a great deal of work that's been going on um, around and certainly a lot of focus in the last few months around the idea of um, privilege and the unique experience in the United States around race. But I do think it's important and certainly Tannenbaum will be uh, doing more work and highlighting more work around the dynamic of uh, white Christian privilege and really looking to see, you know, when we look at systems of inequity, in what ways uh, are we almost kind of set up for the circumstances that we find ourselves in? There, you know, when we tell the Thanksgiving story, for instance, um, there's a great deal of emphasis on this coming together of these two groups of people, but not often as accurately talking about the, um, the domination that took place or the annihilation that took place, or even the, the lack of respect or understanding for the religious and spiritual beliefs of the indigenous peoples in the Americas. And, you know, the only federal holiday that we have that is religious in nature is Christmas Day. Uh, and we can certainly look to our school systems as our K through 12 school systems. We have more school systems actually um, looking at, can we include more holidays? Should we include more holidays that are reflective of the religious beliefs and practices of growing communities within the United States. So when we talk about white Christian privilege, we're really talking about uh, the ways in which one navigates the world and in many instances doesn't even have to be concerned that they might face discrimination of some kind. And I think that that's gonna be an important topic for all of us to deal with as we're looking to continue to build a society that is equitable in all ways. Yes, uh, certainly, certainly agree with that. Uh, we've seen such a dramatic rise in, in hate crimes. I think the FBI just reported uh, an 18-year high uh, of over 4,600 hate crimes in 2019. Uh, the murder of George Floyd is only the latest uh, explosive crime in a long series of injustices uh, that we've seen related to race. Do you think we're less tolerant today than we were 20 years ago? And what can we do to change that situation? I actually don't know if it's fair to say that we're less tolerant as much as it might be more fair to say that there are more ways in real time to see the intolerance that people experience. I think it's important to note that um, the Civil Rights Act was signed in 1964. And we are 
you know, just a little over 50 years from that historic moment. And we have that change in legislation did not necessarily change hearts and minds. And we struggle to this day to unlearn and unweave a very intricate web of assumptions of people and denial of resources to people because of the race that they are born into or are perceived to be a member of. So I don't know that we are less tolerant as much as our intolerance is more easily seen today than it was 20 years ago. And I, 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 yeah, I, and I would really say that that's an important point as we think about our social media world of today. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, the unfortunate thing is that the, the murder of George Floyd is not unique, but what made it unique and what made the other deaths in recent years perhaps more unique is that in real time, people were able to see what clearly was injustice. And I was a child when this happened, and I think some of it happened even before I was born, but when during the civil rights movement, those broadcasts started on television, where people were beginning to visually see and have the visceral experience of what those civil rights uh, heroes were standing for and how they were met with the hoses and the dogs and the beatings. It became a little more difficult to deny that something was amiss, that there had, there could be another way for us to think about these issues than we've kind of held on to as uh, the truth, if you will. And I think, you know, the, one of the things that we can do to change the situation is to really look for ourselves where our fingerprint is on the circumstances that we find ourselves today. Is there a moment where you could have been an ally to someone and because of fear or uh, concern or just apathy, you stepped away from standing for another person. Um, there are any number of ways where the circumstances we find ourselves today, that we find ourselves in today, we are the direct recipient of our own actions. Uh, Mark, you started out in education. Uh, you were a public high school teacher in New York City. I was. What, what changed in your life to inspire you to become an interfaith and interspiritual minister along the way? Well, it's funny because in terms of the, the timeline of everything, so when I was teaching, I was very actively involved in a church and had actually thought about um, becoming a deacon in that church. And that ended up not happening. But over time, um, and I remember this when I was teaching, there would be times where I would be walking down the street and I would hear myself preaching in my head. Like I would, and, and I wasn't recreating something that somebody else said. I was literally hearing in my, my consciousness 
myself preaching on things that I had no connection to. They weren't even part of my own life experience. And that never really left me. But through a, a series of um, uh, providences, I will call them, I was ultimately led to the One Spirit Interfaith Seminary. And it really just felt right. I sat in the, um, the orientation and uh, I think the majority of my experience around interfaith was having grown up Christian. I went to a Presbyterian church for much of my young life and then was unchurched for a couple of years and then you know, went to a community Protestant church, which is still in the Bronx today. And, but periodically being introduced to other people's traditions, primarily African and indigenous traditions. And so an interfaith path kind of seemed right to me. And I also felt like that voice in my head, that preaching never stopped. And I felt like it was important for me to give space to that in my, in my life and uh, to, to find a way for that expression to come out uniquely. That's beautiful. Uh, uh, those voices in your head were the calling. And so, so to, to be able to follow that is so beautiful uh, from a vocational uh, perspective. You talk about, or your, your ministry is both interfaith and interspiritual. Yes. Is there a difference in that? Uh, well, the, 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 the slight difference in the nuance when we talk about interspirituality, we're really talking about what are the, the mystical attributes of traditions that surpass dogma and doctrine. It is the, not what we believe, but it is the recognition of a divine presence that has expressed itself through a variety of people in multiple ways and continues to express itself so that there is kind of no end to the, the uh, physical expression of the divine. And interspirituality looks at the world from the perspective that it's not that there is one truth, but that there is a, a foundational um, understanding of a force greater than ourselves that impacts us in a variety of ways and uh, shows itself in the life experience of people. So different than interfaith, which I think sometimes, unfortunately, becomes just people standing alongside one another, but yeah. not necessarily learning to respect one another. Interspirituality maintains that we are all uniquely and mystically connected beyond any um, assertion of domination or fundamental truth. Boy, Mark, that's a subject we could take up in, in yet another podcast. There's no doubt that that has such depth to it. Uh, so thank you for that, uh, that explanation. My pleasure. You, you run an organization that is fighting every day the realities of, of uh, our, our society, uh, you know, working uh, in, in so many different areas, but in the educational arena with our, with our 
young students uh, in the healthcare arena, just making sure that uh, our healthcare providers really understand the differences in, uh, in religions, uh, in, in their treatments. Uh, and, and I guess the last question I would like to ask you through all of that, are you hopeful? Are you hopeful that we will prevail, that the Tannenbaum Center will prevail with its mission, with its precepts? Um, I am definitely hopeful and I'm certain that Tannenbaum has a unique and important role to play at this particular point in history. I think that because we do our work from a secular perspective and we don't choose favorites, if you will, that we're always looking for those avenues and those solutions that allow people to maintain their individuality and yet practice respect for difference. Um, I'm hopeful that, because I should say I'm hopeful because when I look at the people who have taken to the streets, quite honestly and transparently, when I look at the number of white people who are also deeply concerned with a social contract that they don't believe works any longer for anyone, uh, that gives me hope. And I'm hopeful that from a personal and spiritual perspective that the, the deep connection with spirit that people have is an ongoing process. And what challenges we face today actually become or can become uh, a testimony of victory at some point in the future. So I, I do have some hope. Until next time, this is Tony DiGiovanni and Claremont Lincoln University, helping shine the light on great examples of ethical leadership in our communities. Come visit us today at claremontlincoln.edu.